0: Hello, dear listener. This is Tanner here with Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. A reminder that these episodes about Ukraine and Russia are not scripted. They are reporting as quickly as events happen, as often as I can get them. Sometimes I will misspeak. Sometimes I will say things that are untrue, simply because the information that I have at the time is all that I'm being given. In the future, we may look back at things I say here and we'll realize, oh, he was totally wrong about that. But remember, I am doing this because I want people to be as updated as I am, because I'm trying to stay as updated as possible about the events that are happening and trying to report them as unbiased as I possibly can. So, with that being said, please give me grace if I misspeak, and please remember that I'm trying to do my absolute best. Without further ado, enjoy this one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome again to the podcast. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I'm Tanner. I'm talking about stuff that happened. We're back ...with the series about the Russo-Ukrainian War, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, led by Russian President Vladimir Putin. And what's crazy about this is that today, we are officially one month into the conflict. We are one month since the invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, 2022. I released my first episode late into the night about this conflict... Um, on February 23rd 2022 and I was watching it happen live on my television screen as I was recording the podcast I was watching explosions over the capital city of Kiev as I was recording the podcast I was watching the United Nations emergency session emergency se- emergency session happening live. As I was recording the podcast, it was really a surreal experience for me to be doing that as I was recording really, really an amazing things to, to behold. And I mean, to be honest, this is a really amazing thing that we are seeing like just in our lifetimes to be seeing this happen. This is the largest conventional military operation since the end of world war two, almost 80 years ago. So if you've been following how I kind of transformed this podcast into becoming a news podcast about what was going on in Ukraine specifically and how it was impacting world events, you'll know that in the first few days I was very focused on what was happening on the ground and as time began to go by I stopped focusing so much on what was going on on the ground. I started looking a little bit more at global geopolitics and that was because the Russian advance kind of stagnated and there wasn't a whole lot to report on concerning what was going on on the ground. So... Today, we're just going to take a step back and look at the overall situation. We're a month into this war, the largest conventional war since the end of World War II, much less on the European continent, and there are a lot of global ramifications happening. I mean, we're, we're feeling the shockwaves all across the world. We're feeling the shockwaves at our gas pumps, like me living in the suburb that I live in. I watched as the war changed the gas prices in my hometown. On the other, in in a separate hemisphere, in this global system that we live in, wars on the other side of the globe impact how we live our lives. On you know, ten thousand miles away. So we're just going to talk about what's going on here and how and the global ramifications. But, as always, right before I start, remember, if you're enjoying the podcast and if you're enjoying how I'm reporting these things as they're happening, please head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review. Let me know that you're enjoying what you're hearing. It means a lot to me, and it helps to spread the podcast to new ears. So, let's look at what's going on on the ground in Ukraine right now. With the exception of a Ukrainian missile strike on an airport in Russia, the entire war has happened... Either in Ukraine or in the Black Sea. So, this war is often characterized by many people as just a Russian invasion of a sovereign country, and that's pretty much what it is. It's not, it's, and it could be easily characterized that way if the war had been over within, you know, a couple weeks. But it's not. It's been a month and it's looking like it's going to stretch for several more months at least. And so this is not necessarily... I'm I'm not classifying this as just an invasion anymore. I'm classifying this as an actual war because Ukraine has fought back to a point where the Russian advance has been effectively halted in a lot of areas. Which means that this is no longer just an invasion. This is a war because two sides are equally fighting one another. So... Since the beginning of the war, Russian gains on the ground, though they have gained a lot of ground, they are not as extensive as Putin probably predicted that they would be. I mean, there were rumors that Russian military leaders were bragging that Kiev could fall in a matter of 11 minutes if they decided to really throw everything they had at Ukraine. And now this is, maybe they're not throwing everything they have at Ukraine, obviously they haven't nuked them, but... They've thrown a sizable military force, two hundred thousand soldiers, Russian soldiers and a number of uh, Chechenian soldiers and other Syrian fighters are currently in Ukraine fighting the Ukrainians. And their advances have not been as extensive as maybe they would have hoped. They attacked on three fronts: they attacked in the south from Crimea, in the east from the two breakaway republics, uh, the Donetsk and the donetsk and luansk republics and in the north they attacked from the country of belarus who is allied with russia and none of those attacks have really made the effective gains that putin probably hoped that they would and out of the eight major population centers in ukraine only one of those has actually fallen to russia and that's the ukrainian city of Kherson, which is near uh the territory of crimea but in the end, despite throwing 200,000 Russian soldiers and a lot of mechanized units at Ukraine, Russia has been unable to take the capital city of Kiev, which they were really focused on. And several battles have been fought in the streets of Kiev since the outbreak of the war, but Russians have not been able to hold on to it. They have laid siege to two large population centers, Kharkiv in the north and Mariupol in the southeast. And neither of those have been able to be been taken, but they've turned into complete civilian, like, humanitarian disasters. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But in terms of these sieges that are happening, right from the onset of the war, Russia began bombing targets all across Ukraine and shooting rockets into Ukraine from Belarus and from Russia. And these rocket strikes have been accompanied by airborne bombing strikes. And when the war began, most of these strikes were targeted at military structures, but as the war has gone on, we've seen apartment buildings be bombed, we've seen hospitals be bombed. Just a few days ago, we saw a theater that was full of refugees be bombed and So, these Russian tactics are starting to devolve into trying to break the morale of the Ukrainian people instead of break the morale of the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian government. Now, obviously, this has been met with international condemnation both from civilians and from people around the world on social media and also from governments around the world and the United Nations, but obviously... Russia doesn't care very much about what the United Nations thinks because they have not slowed down their attack They have not changed their tactics. They're keeping going with what they've been doing and because of those tactics There is a massive refugee crisis out of Ukraine right now Ukrainians are fleeing the country in droves to the neighboring countries of Poland Slovakia Romania Moldova Hungary They're just I mean as far as Germany they're fleeing I mean understandably so as of today Recent numbers are that 3.6 million refugees have fled the country, most of those into Poland, I think 2.1 million have gone into Poland, The rest, most of the rest into the neighboring countries of Romania, Moldova, Slovakia, and Hungary, but others have gone into places such as Denmark, Sweden, and like I said, Germany, Italy... And while 3.6 million have fled the country, there's a further 6.5 million who have been internally displaced, which means if you lived in eastern Ukraine and you want to get away from the fighting, you flee to western Ukraine, maybe a family there, such as the western city of Lviv. And uh, 6.5 million have been internally displaced like that, which means that 10 million people have been displaced by this conflict. One in four Ukrainians have been displaced by the conflict. That's a lot. Those are those are high numbers. Those who have decided to shelter in place are mostly hiding out in metro stations. The Ukrainian metro stations, which were built during the Cold War, which were built by the Soviet Union during the Cold War, and are built to withstand huge missile blasts because, you know, Cold War, these metro stations have just been completely converted into you know, villages, basically, and Ukrainian people are down there for weeks on end, particularly in the cities of Kharkiv and Mariupol, which are both seeing the fiercest fighting of the war so far and are both under siege. They've both been encircled and are under siege. That gives you an idea of the scary situation a lot of ukrainians are in right now because kharkiv is in the north part of the country and mariupol is in the south part of the country both of those cities are encircled which means that russia is attacking on at least two sides we know they're attacking on three sides plus missile strikes and bombings all across the nation with a potential beach landing in the western in the southwestern part of the country in odessa which has been rumored for weeks now but as far as i know hasn't actually happened but talking about kharkiv and mariupol um, I may be pronouncing those cities wrong, I probably am, and I, I'm sorry to any Ukrainians or people who speak Ukrainian that are listening, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm probably pronouncing those wrong, but in Kharkiv and Mariupol, there's just fierce street fighting going on, as I think that Mariupol was encircled for three weeks before Russian troops finally decided to really breach into the city, and now there's street fighting going on there, and from what I've heard from eyewitness accounts, it's that The Ukrainian people who are hiding out in the metro systems, it's too dangerous for them to even go up to the street to maybe get food, maybe run to a nearby building. It's too dangerous because that's how many missile strikes are hitting the city and civilians are dying everywhere. It's a humanitarian disaster. And so I'm sure that at the end of this war, Russia will be held accountable for those attacks. But neither of the cities have fallen to the Russians yet. The Ukrainians in those cities are still trying to fight off the Russian advance. They have determination that they will be able to fight off the Russian advance, despite the fact that both of those cities are without water, without electricity, and are quickly running out of food. And the Russian advance continues, despite the mess that it has been so far. It does continue. They do capture a little bit more territory every day. Slow progress, yes, but progress. However... In the past week, the Ukrainian military has come off the defensive and they are now mounting a number of counteroffensives against the Russian military on all fronts, in the north, in the east, and in the south. And uh, their ranks have been bolstered by armed populace, 20,000 foreign volunteers, and military-grade weaponry from virtually every country in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. We're talking Germany, France, the United States, Canada... Norway, Albania, Austria—I mean, anywhere you can think of—they've sent some kind of military. North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Most of them, most of them have sent military aid, but the rest who have not sent military aid have sent humanitarian aid to Ukraine to try to get pe- tr- to try to get people treated medically for wounds and for other things that are emergency situations that are caused by the war. So that's what's going on in Ukraine right now. That's going on on the ground. And while I, I'm a I'm a I'm a historical war nut, and I love to hear about you know historical wars and things like that and how they unfolded. And while this is all very very fascinating to me, mostly just because this is the first conventional warfare that's happened in my lifetime, and so to see it happening and unfolding before my very eyes is deeply fascinating. Tragic, obviously, but deeply fascinating. What I and what I believe most people in the world did not anticipate is the incredible global destabilization that this has caused and we're going to talk about that just a little bit so first let's talk about what's going on in russia right now russia has been cut off from all western economic inlets and very few western nations are accepting any russian goods and that's due to all of the sanctions that are that have been placed on russia since the war started the day after the war started the russian stock market crashed into oblivion something something To to a level that we've never seen before. In the days after the invasion, the Russian stock exchange plummeted more than 50% overnight. Essentially, overnight. Russian central banks, which were sanctioned beyond anything anyone expected, were swarmed by Russian civilians trying to withdraw their money. Some banks lost over 90% of their stock value in a matter of days. 90%. To put that in perspective, if I bought a share of, let's say, Coinbase stock today. Coinbase stock is worth $180 right now. If I were to buy it, that share of stock is worth $180 when I bought it. And then, you know, today's, Wednesday, today's Thursday, if by Monday this kind of thing happened, that stock would then be worth maybe $15. I spent $180, and in four days, it would then be worth Maybe $15. And while the stock market has rebounded a little bit, the Russian president Vladimir Putin actually just ended up shutting down the stock market for three weeks because that's how big of a panic the entire Russian populace was in. So what happens when the entire West decides that they're no longer going to accept any Russian goods and they're not going to sell anything to Russia either? Russia's completely cut off. It's like the Iron Curtain is back up again. What does Russia decide that it's going to do? Russia decides that it's going to turn to the other countries who have decided that they are not going to put up that curtain again. Russia has turned to China, Russia has turned to India, and actually, weirdly enough, Russia has turned to North Korea. Since the outbreak of the war, Russia has held talks. Putin has held talks with Xi Jinping, which who is the premier of China, and he's also reportedly had talks with uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, which is one of the weirdest things I think I've ever heard of in my whole life. Basically like, hey, the whole world hates us, want to team up? Interesting stuff. Since that talk, Kim Jong-un has actually ramped up his anti-Western rhetoric. He's straight up said that, yeah, we're ready to go to war with the United States, which, to be honest, is not that out of the ordinary. He says some, something like that every single year, but, I mean, he said it again since the war broke out, and so that's just kind of kind of an interesting development there. But China and Russia have been getting closer, and that's one that I want to focus on a little bit, because if China and Russia keep getting closer, that means we're looking at more of an Axis versus allies type situation. Because obviously China and the US have not been friendly for the last several years. And if now and now they're now Russia and the US are very, very unfriendly. Russia and the entirety of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization is very unfriendly. And if Russia was to end up in a war with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and summoned China to help, China would probably be more than willing to because they're already unfriendly to the United States, who that would give them an opportunity to go to war with. I don't know for sure, but that's what I'm looking at here. And if China and Russia keep getting closer... We could be looking at that kind of situation again, which could be really nasty. Particularly because China is very close with North Korea. North Korea is on the border of South Korea. South Korea is a, uni- a U.S. ally. China is also right across this, po- right across the pond—not across the pond, United States and, Ukra- and uh, Ukraine and the United Kingdom, speaking—but right across the sea from Japan. And Japan is very close with the United States as well. Now, at the outbreak of the war, I was talking about how China was probably watching this, wanting to see how it went, because it would dictate how they decide to go about the whole Taiwan situation but China's been kind of quiet about Taiwan for the last couple weeks so that right after the outbreak they were flying jets right across Taiwan like hey look what we're gonna do but even after the one time after the outbreak of the war they said yeah we're gonna take Taiwan they've been kind of quiet for the last three weeks I'm starting to wonder if maybe they ch- changed their mind with how nasty this whole situation has gotten and how it really has disrupted and destabilized all of global geopolitics It's disabled relations between the United States and Saudi Arabia, the United States and Iran. Iran's gotten closer with China and Russia. It's, there was a random incident of India firing a rocket into Pakistan, supposedly accidentally. I mean, it seems like the world just got a lot more volatile just in the last month. If you would have told me in January we're this close to World War Three, I legitimately would not have believed you. But here we are. And talking about World War Three there is currently, because of this conflict, the very, very present threat of global thermonuclear war, which would annihilate most of humanity. Why is that? That's because Russia has officially put their nuclear arsenal on high alert, and a lot of people are speculating that it's because Putin is very frustrated with what's going on in Ukraine. He did not anticipate that Ukraine was going to put up this much of a fight. Now, here he is being somewhat humiliated by supposedly what is the 88th ranked Country in the world in terms of their military facing off with the third ranked country in the world in terms of their military And the third ranked country is getting beat by the 88th ranked now The 88th rank is probably a lot higher now because of all the military equipment Ukraine has received But still humiliating for somebody who for somebody like Putin who whose pride is really through the roof but we have not seen this level of talk of total nuclear annihilation since the end of the Cold War and certainly not in my lifetime, and I never thought in my whole lifetime about it. we'd ever be talking about nuclear weapons, but here we are. I mean, my parents told me stories about how they learned the duck and cover maneuver, which now we know is not necessarily to protect you, but to keep you calm until the very last second if an, if an atomic blast was to happen near where you were. But, I mean, look, in my lifetime I never expected I would ever be talking about the potential nuclear annihilation of our species and of most life on Earth but here we are talking about it and it's because Russia has invaded Ukraine and maybe it would have happened anyway, but that's why it's important to study these kinds of conflicts. And the very last thing we're going to talk about before I move to a short little question and answer session is that Finland and Sweden are both inching toward joining NATO, which they were opposed to prior to this conflict. They didn't want to join because they like to say neutral in wars, but with Russia invading a supposedly neutral country like Ukraine They've said, oh, maybe we're not safe from the Russian bear, so maybe we should join NATO anyway, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and if they were, that would put both of them almost directly on the border with Russia. It would put Finland directly on the border with Russia, and Sweden would be very close. That would put all of Scandinavia, Norway, Sweden, and Finland right on the border of Russia, and I don't think Russia would like that very much. So that's how the global political situation has somewhat destabilized, or somewhat, it has totally destabilized since this conflict has broken out. All right, we're going to do a quick Q&A session. I've done a lot of these. Um, this one is, you know, traditionally, all I do is I just put a call out on Instagram. I say, hey, if you want, if you have any questions about this war, ask away. I'm going to talk about it. Uh, now's your time. I will answer it in the podcast. So let's dive right into these. First of all, one of my friends just said, why is this happening? well long story short what's going on is that back in 2014 Ukraine was thinking about joining the European Union if they joined the European Union they would probably adopt the euro and they would become a lot more western friendly and a lot less Eastern friendly Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union all the way back until 19 all the way until 1991 which really wasn't that long ago and in 2014, they were holding a referendum saying, "Hey, let's uh let's let's get closer to the West. We're kind of fed up with all this Russia stuff. Let's let's modernize, let's westernize, let's democratize. Let's adopt a lot of these western ideals." And they were in the referendum said, "Yeah, well, let's do that. That's a great idea." But then right before the referendum happened, they decided the Ukrainian government scrubbed it and they said, "You know what? We're going to think about this again. We're going to we're going to rethink this." Now, what came out shortly after that was that Vladimir Putin or another Russian official had actually come straight to Ukraine and said, we want you to scrub this bill and we want you to write some more pro-Russia rhetoric into it. And then you can do it again, but want to make sure the terms are more favorable to Russia. And this came out into the public and the public freaked out. There was a revolution in Ukraine and Ukraine ended up being more pro-Western. And ever since then, there was a war going on inside Ukraine where two republics in eastern Ukraine, the Luhansk and Donetsk republics, both broke away from Ukraine. They said that we are, they said we are independent republics, we are mostly Russian, and ethnically they are almost entirely Russian. And so they said we are pro-Russian, we want to be part of Russia, we don't want to be part of Ukraine, and uh, Russia, right before this war, recognized those two republics as independent. Ukraine said no, those are part of Ukraine, and there's been a civil war inside Ukraine since 2014. If I remember correctly, around 10,000 people have become victims of that war, and they've died from that war. and Far more have been displaced, or have been wounded, or have been hurt, or you know something has happened. And then because of that war, Ukraine has not been a super happy place to live because of that. Now, the Ukraine started... Expressing sentiments that they were interested in joining the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Now, if they were to join that organization, that would mean that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which represents most of Europe and the United States and Canada, if Ukraine were to join that organization, it would put all of that... that 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 military alliance, it would put that right on Russia's doorstep. Now, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was created right after the end of World War II with the express purpose of allying against potential Russian aggression, so that if Russia attacked one of these countries, it would be attacking all of them. It was a hindrance to Russian aggression, and it still exists to this day. A lot of people say it shouldn't, but it still does. And if Ukraine was to join that organization, it would put that anti-Russian coalition on Russia's doorstep, which Russia wasn't favorable to. And so... When Ukraine started expressing, hey, we're kind of interested in joining NATO, eventually Russia decided to invade to stop that from happening. There's a lot of other things that are going on there. There's a lot of other moving parts. There's a lot of conspiracy theories about what's going on there. I don't subscribe to most of those conspiracy theories. There's a few that I'm a little bit iffy about because there are some fishy, some fishy things happening in Ukraine, but for the most part, that's the central reason this has happened, because Russia wants to put Ukraine back under its thumb because it's got Belarus under its thumb, which puts a border between it and most of NATO, and if it put Ukraine under its thumb, it would mean Belarus and Ukraine are both buffers between Russia and NATO, so if NATO decided to attack Russia, it would have to go around Belarus and around Ukraine, and that would make a war much more difficult and a lot less likely overall all right the next question was explain a no-fly zone to me like i'm five now this is a big debate happening a lot of people are saying we need to we need to put a no-fly zone over ukraine and i think a lot of people just legitimately have no idea what a no-fly zone means and i think they don't realize that if you say hey no-fly zone it doesn't mean no one will ever fly there there's not some magical barrier that suddenly gets put up and planes can't fly anymore Pretty much all it means is that if the United if the United States was going to Ukraine and say, hey, this is a no-fly zone, Russia, you can't fly any more planes here, Russia would be like, okay, whatever, because they're already doing a military operation there. They're not going to suddenly decide to stop their military operation because someone else said so. The United Nations has already completely condemned it, and Russia didn't heed to that at all. So what makes anybody think that a no-fly zone would actually change anything? Now... Maybe we should do it anyway because it wouldn't change anything, but we should do it anyway because it's a symbolic thing. Now, here's the problem with that. A no-fly zone means that if the United States puts up a no-fly zone somewhere, it says that if anybody flies here, we will, we will try to escort your aircraft out of that airspace. Or if you do not comply, we will shoot down that aircraft. That's what a no-fly zone means. So what that means for Ukraine is if the United States puts up a no-fly zone, Russia flies its planes in, we try to escort their planes out, either they fire on United States planes or the United States planes fire on them. Just like that, we're in World War III. All of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization goes to war with Russia and Belarus, probably China if China decides to get involved with Russia. And we've just got a whole big mess on our hands. So if you're calling for a no-fly zone, stop doing it. Please stop doing it. You're making yourself look very uneducated and I'm sorry to say that, but it's just true. All right. Why are the media and other people so gung ho about pushing Ukraine as so great all of a sudden? This one is a little bit more explainable and a big reason for it is because it is the first instance we've seen in my lifetime of a sovereign state invading another sovereign state. Um, I mean, we did have the Russo-Georgian War, we've had a couple other small-scale wars, but this is the first large-scale conflict like this. this, is the first thing we've seen in our lifetime of this scale. And we've seen a lot of Ukrainians suffer for that. And for the most part, it seems that people are starting to realize that we actually do respect sovereign borders, and people shouldn't just be allowed to walk into someone else's country and say, hey, this is mine now. And I think this is the first existential threat to a nation that we've seen, again, in our lifetime so a lot of people are favoring ukraine for that reason because it's like a big bully standing up to a little kid and little and a little kid is trying to stand up to the big bully i phrased that a little bit wrong but you know what i'm saying it basically is like a big bully on the playground picking on another little kid for his lunch money little kids standing up and a lot of other people are backing up the little kid that's why that's why ukraine's getting propped up like that In in that sense but also There are some weird discrepancies there, and I don't understand why everyone's saying Ukraine is such a great state, and President Zelensky is such a great, amazing leader. Now, let's be honest here. Zelensky has had a lot of cool stuff happen since the war broke out, and he has really risen to the challenge, but before the war, he was not a great leader. He had something like 20% approval rating before the war broke out. He was not a great leader. Really, nothing changed in Ukraine, and Ukraine is very high on the corruption list. Now, I did some research on this because I was curious about this, and it looks like Ukraine, by Amnesty International, uh, they ranked Ukraine 120th out of 180 countries in terms of corruption. That's like on the level of, like, the Congo, Sub-Saharan Africa countries, Uganda, things like that. Ukraine is that corrupt. And uh, they've got a lot of different... I mean, their, their, their courts are corrupt, their politicians are corrupt. There was a prominent Ukrainian politician trying to flee the country with something like $30 million worth of Ukrainian money like that was just caught a week ago. I mean, there's a lot of corruption in that country. And so it is kind of interesting to me that people are so gung-ho about pushing Ukraine as this extremely patriotic, wonderful, fiercely independent, great nation, when in reality, it's not. It was not a great place to live before the war, and it's not going to be a great place to live after it. So... It's kind. It's made me a little bit suspicious of this whole conflict, to be totally honest, because I'm like, Ukraine is not a great, wonderful place to live. In, I mean, compared to, like, the United States, it's not this wonderful place to live. I mean, there's Nazis there, and that's not a conspiracy theory, that's real. There are several Nazi battalions who are currently fighting the Russians, but before they were fighting the Russians, they were fighting the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, and they've come out and said that they're extreme white nationalists, they are anti-Semitic. They've called for the removal of Jews from Ukraine. I mean, it's, 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 there's, it's, it's curious to me that Ukraine does not talk about these or not that Ukraine is, it's curious to me that news agencies just gloss over this and they don't talk about these Nazi battalions. They don't talk about the corruption inside Ukraine. And you know, there is the whole thing between Donald Trump and the Ukrainian leader Zelensky. There's the whole thing between Joe Biden, supposedly Hunter Biden doing corrupt deals with the Ukrainian with, with several Ukrainian, uh, corporations, which again, those are not conspiracy theories. That is true. That is true that that was happening. And, uh, curious to me that since this war has broken out, news agencies have been very quiet about this. So I don't know why the media is so gung ho about pushing Ukraine as this amazing country all of a sudden. I really don't know. We didn't hear, I, I literally did not hear a single news headline about Ukraine until there was the whole Trump debacle. And then not really not another one until the Joe Biden thing. And then not another one until the war broke out. So look, I don't know. I, d- I don't have a good answer to that question. Um, People keep saying Ukraine is corrupt and I don't know why. Well, I, d- I just told you why. I guess I jumped ahead to that question a little bit. But yes, cor- Ukraine is one of the most corrupt nations in the world, unfortunately. But it's true. Do we stand a chance against Russia and China if they team up? Um. Yes, we totally do. If we were to wage a conventional war against Russia and China, we would come out on top because not only are we the most powerful military in the world, we are more powerful than the Russian and Chinese military combined. We also have the North Atlantic Treaty Organization on our side, which means that if we were to fight a conventional war, we are also, we are also allies with Japan and South Korea, which would mean that... Russia would be fighting a war on two fronts and China would be fighting a war on two fronts. And that would be very, very difficult for both of those countries to fight off, even though they are two of the most powerful countries in the world. When we don't stand a chance against Russia and China is if Russia and China decide to annihilate the entire planet through nuclear means. If they decide the war is not going well, let's just wipe everybody out, bring everybody down with us leave Adam and Eve back on the planet to repopulate everything. Uh, That's when... We don't stand a chance against Russia and China, but Russia and China don't stand a can't chance against Russia and China when that starts happening. When nuclear war breaks out, all bets are off for anybody surviving it. Morbid, but it's the truth. Do you think Russia will fully be able to take over? No, I don't. I do not think Russia will be able to fully take over Ukraine if Russia is victorious in this war and defeats the Ukrainian military, assassinates President Zelensky, uh, takes over Kiev. Even then, the Ukrainians have armed something like 15% of their population, they've just given guns out to everybody. And so Ukraine has proven itself to be very ultra-nationalist. They will not bow down to the Russian invaders. They, I mean, even people in occupied cities in Ukraine that are occupied by Russians, they're protesting, even though Russians are, even though the Russian soldiers are firing on them, they're still protesting that. So if Russia... Does defeat the Ukrainian military and takes over Kiev, it will turn into something like a Vietnam for Russia, and Russia will just continue to lose soldiers. It will lose popular support inside Russia, which there's not a whole lot of popular support inside Russia for this war anyway. And either Russia will have to capitulate and do what they did in Afghanistan and eventually just give up, or they will lose thousands and thousands of soldiers and bankrupt their own country by fighting a guerrilla war against Ukrainian insurgents. All right um, and what about China taking Taiwan? Well, I talked about that a little bit. I am starting to get the feeling that maybe China has given up on Taiwan. They thought maybe this isn't such a great idea after all, because after what Russia did to Ukraine, it's not, not a great look. And the other thing with Taiwan is that Taiwan actually has military allies. Ukraine has no military allies, but Taiwan does. And one of them is the United States of America. So if China attacks Taiwan, that's essentially, uh, at least a Chinese American war, potentially a lot more than that. And so Russia has been sanctioned to the ground. Their economy is tanking. Their military is having a really bad time and, uh, maybe China starting to rethink their whole Taiwan situation. I'd love to understand more about when it becomes more likely slash more necessary to engage in the war. Like for example, what is the tipping point for a country like ours to be fighting? Like, all right, we're fighting now. Well, if Russia attacks a North Atlantic Treaty Organization nation, that is the point that we will probably start putting boots on the ground. As long as the war stays contained in Ukraine, we will. it is very unlikely that we will actually jump into the war, because Ukraine is not an ally of any nation in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So even though it's a tragedy what's going on in Ukraine, the Ukrainian people are suffering, Ukrainians are dying, this is unjust, Russia is unjust, it is and they should be held accountable for this there's really nothing we can do without bringing the entire world to the brink of a enormous potentially species ending war and so the only time that the 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 tipping point as you said the tipping point for the war is when russia outright attacks a north atlantic treaty organization member country someone like poland slovakia hungary estonia latvia lithuania uh, romania moldova Uh, Moldova is not part of the North North Atlantic Treaty Organization, but any of those countries that are part of the organization, if Russia attacks any one of those countries, that immediately brings the entire organization into the war, as is said on the charter of the actual organization itself. Which also means that the United States and Canada and any other North Atlantic Treaty Organization nation, including Spain, including Italy, including France, Germany, including Denmark, Norway, all of those countries will immediately be, be in a state of war with Russia. So I think that's highly unlikely that Russia will actually go for that because that would mean the complete annihilation of Russia as a country, essentially. So that's the answer to that. Do we even have the military strength to fight against, uh, yes, we, to, to fight in world war three against Russia and China. Yes, we do have the military strength. We would win that war because not only do we have a higher, uh, higher defense budget and higher, uh, military budget than both of them combined. We also have the North Atlantic treaty organization, which at this point is holding this world together, unfortunately, but true. So those are all the questions that I was asked on Instagram, uh, or other variations of those questions, So that's all for today. I'm going to head out. Thank you all for listening, and I will catch you all um, hopefully very soon. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.